Would you open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? I see a couple of new faces out there. And let me say welcome to you. You're always welcome to come and enjoy our services, enjoy the Lord. This morning I will be preaching expositionally, which means we take a text of Scripture and we expose that to us and to the congregation and consider what that means for our lives. And if you are visiting with us, we would love for you to fill out a visitor card and give that to us. Um, we have those in the back on the way out, and uh, it will help us know how to pray for you. If you would uh, want us to contact you for any reason, uh, that would help us as well. But thank you for coming this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The, one of the most common talking points in America is a call for unity. Some of you might remember, if you're old enough, 9-11. And after that, there was a resounding call for unity, to be united. United we stand, divided we fall. Okay, some of you didn't know that, probably because of your age. But that, there was a uniting after that tragedy. If you read the speeches of presidents over the past few decades, one of the themes in their speeches is unity. In 2016, after President Donald Trump won the White House in November, he said, it is time for us to come together as one united people. In 2021, President Biden, in his inaugural address, he said this, unity is the path forward. And his first executive action was to make January 20th a national day of unity. And the point of that is that governments and politicians talk a lot about unity. How's that going for us, by the way, in America? There are many institutions where we call for unity. Marriages should have unity to become one. In fact, in many marriage ceremonies, you have the unity candle, and you light that to symbolize that you are one and you are to be unified. Businesses need unity, like employees need to unite under the company's values, under their common purpose, their standards of excellence. Unity is a very important value in our society. But interesting enough, unity is rarely achieved, isn't it? It sometimes is, but it's rarely, rarely realized. Marriages have trouble attaining it. Companies struggles to, struggle to maintain it. Governments, frankly, rarely never have it. But for the church of Jesus Christ, unity is actually essential. Unity is commanded. Unity is necessary. Unity for the church is godly. Unity is Christ-like. Unity is expected. And unity is only possible by the grace of God. So this morning, we're going to consider God's desire for unity for his church. Now think about this. If human institutions like governments and marriages, well, that's, a God, that's an institution by God, but human institutions try to aspire to unity, but they rarely achieve it, how is it even possible for us as a church to have unity? In our text today, we're going to consider that God, consi God commands our church to be unified, 
But how can we have that unity? Well, we, we believe that if God commands something, then he will enable something, right? In fact, look in first, verse 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 4, 1. Here we see that, God sa- that Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the what? The grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And the truth is we can't have unity without God's grace. And we can't have God's grace without humility. And humility is found at the foot of the cross. When we humble ourselves before Christ and his cross and his work for us, we confess we are sinners, we by faith trust in him, grace flows to us and the Holy Spirit unites us. This morning we're going to discover that this text teaches us Because God desires unity for his church, we must humble ourselves under the preaching of the cross. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Our text is verses 10 through 17. Would you stand with me as I read these verses and I read aloud our text for this morning? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be empty of its power. Let's pray. Father, we believe that there's power in the preaching of the gospel. So Holy Spirit, empower this service, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Because God desires unity for his church, we must humble ourselves under the preaching of the cross. That's what this text teaches us this morning. And so first, notice that God desires unity for his church. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. And then later on, that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. This letter of 1 Corinthians was was written by the Apostle Paul to this church in Corinth, a church he started. Paul was actually in Ephesus when he wrote this, over 200 miles away. And he starts in verses 1 through 9. Verse 1 through 9, he greets them, he prays for them. And then in verse 10, he gets right to the point. Verse 10 represents one of the greatest 
threat to this church and frankly to churches all over the world. And that is the threat of disunity. First, notice this plea is a unity for a local assembly, for a local church. Paul was not addressing the unity between churches all over the world. He wasn't addressing the unity between the church of Ephesus and the church of Corinth. No, this was unity within the local church in Corinth. Notice verse 10, he addressed them as brothers or and sisters in Christ. In other words, they are in the family of God. And then second, observe in verse 10, how he specifically talks about them as a group. Verse 10 says that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, that you be united. And so here Paul is addressing a group of people in a local city. 15 times in the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the phrase among you to refer to a local church, the local church there. And it's important to highlight this because this local church was made up of a, group, of a group of Christians who were living in covenant with God and with each other. In our modern day, we call that church membership. And church membership has the idea that we officially and publicly covenant with one another. That means we are committed to loving each other, to keeping each other accountable to follow Christ, to, to follow the teaching of God's word preached by our shepherds. And think about this. You can't have unity unless you know who you're unifying with, right? You can't have unity unless you know who you're unifying with, and you can't have unity unless you have some type of mutual commitment. So that's why one of the reasons why we think Church membership is important at Lighthouse. Think about it this way. Think about a, a, a guy, a single guy and a single girl, and they're hanging out somewhere talking. And this guy says, hey, I think that I'm going to buy a 2022 Audi R8. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You know what that is? There you go. Okay, one guy does. It's, it's, it's worth about $125,000, maybe more. I don't know. It's inflation. I don't know. Every day you got to look at the the cost, I guess. And she says to him, oh, you can't do that. That's way too expensive. Now, what if he says back to her, well, I can if I want to. What's the, what's the truth behind that? He can if he wants to, right? I mean, if he wants to buy that, he can buy that. Why is that? Well, she is not needing to be unified with him on his finances. He's independent. He's single. He can do what he wants. But let's say that he pops the question. They get married. They commit to being one. They are in a covenant marriage. Then he says, hey, guess what? I'm going to buy a 2022 Audi R8. Does she have a say now? Yes, and hopefully all the men say yes on that one. <laughs> and why is that? It's because they have a covenant that unifies them. And the covenant of marriage unites them as one, and therefore they must now live within that united relationship. And in a similar way, the commitment of church membership unites us as a covenant people, which means we must live within that covenant relationship, which is what? It's a relationship of love for one another. So if you are a member of Lighthouse, you have committed to unity with one another. 
In fact, if you look in verse 10, you can see that he appeals to them to be united. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it's under the authority of Christ that I'm writing this to you. And he says that you all agree that you be united. What does he mean by that? What does it mean to all agree and to all be united? Well, well, the church must be united in four different ways. We must be united in doctrine. A church must agree on the foundational doctrines of the faith. That's one of the reasons why the New Testament was written. Much of it was written to say, here's what true doctrine is, and let me correct false doctrine. So we must agree on the, the source of our authority. Someone comes in here and they say, well, I believe this. We say, oh, actually, the Bible is the only rule for faith and practice. So this is the source of our authority. We must agree about who God is, how God saves. So a church must be united in doctrine. A church must be united in moral ethics, in morality. In fact, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, you can see this call of Paul to moral unity within a local church. Paul wrote that there was a member of the local church who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, and that should cause you to go, ooh, because that's not right. And look at verse 1, chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. That's not good. So what is the church to do about someone who is in a covenant relationship with the church, but they're living an immoral life? Well, if you look at verse 11, he tells us, and the answer is to call them to unity with the moral ethics of Christ. And if they reject that, they say, I can live however I want to live, then verse 11 instructs the church to remove that person from membership. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because here he calls them to be united, but what's interesting is the problems in the church were not in relationship to doctrine and morality, at least in chapter 1. He obviously addresses that later. But his call here in chapter 1 is not about doctrine. It's not about morality. It's actually about their relationships with one another, and it's about the purpose of the church. In fact, look at verse 10. He says that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you. So these are, these are talking about relationships, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The adjective agree there in verse 10 speaks of speaking with one voice. It literally means that, to speak with one voice. And he contrasts that with divisions among you. So the picture is we're to speak with one voice and not have other voices that are speaking out. And really the picture is like, like a choir or like a congregation that sings. A little bit ago we sang, Oh Great God. And all of us with one voice sang that. Now I say one voice. We had different instruments. We had Jorge strumming up here and we had Josh drumming the guitar, the, the drum box back there. There you go. Is that what it's called, a drum box? Cajon, okay, that's the word I was looking for. And you have uh, Jessica on the piano. You had some people singing bass, some uh, baritone, some alto. Most people were singing um, the melody, right? So you have these different voices. You have young, you have old, some that are getting the sheet music and the bulletin, and you, you can follow the notes. 
Some of you don't know what that even means, and you can't really carry a tune, but you are singing the words with us, right? And the point is, we are one voice, but there's a diversity. There's a diversity of gifts. There's a diversity of instruments, of voices. And so it's a, it's a harmony, right? We're singing together. And that's really the picture here. We are united as one. We agree as one. And there are no divisions. And how distracting and ugly would it be if we were all singing in here and in the beautiful harmony and then one person on the front row decided to stand up and they were going to sing their own song and their own uh, tune? That would be, I mean, it would be so distracting. It would be terrible, wouldn't it? In other words, it would, it would distract from what we were trying to do. That's the picture you have here. We are all to sing with one voice in harmony with each other. I think it's important to remember that unity is not the same thing as uniformity, right? Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. We are called to unity, not to uniformity. Uniformity means we erase all of our uniqueness and we demand that we look like each other. It's kind of like a cult, right? Dress like the pastor. Everyone, if you're going to really be spiritual, dress like me, right? Or, or act like me or, or have my culture, and make sure you adopt that for yourself. That is not what Christ wants for his church. It's not we should have all young people, or we should be all old people, or we should look like it looked in the 1940s, or look like it's going to look in the 19, or 2030s. You know? it's, the idea is, is that we're not trying to be uniform. We want unity. And the church of Jesus Christ should have young and old and rich and poor, men and women and children. It should have different cultures It should have Jews and Greeks and Mexicans and those who think they're Irish but probably are really German. You know who you are. And Indian and dark skin and light skin and Asian. The point is, is that those differences are not what unite us. And I would say this, actually. Those differences are not what unite us and they shouldn't divide us. There are churches that are trying to unite themselves based upon a a racial movement or based upon a political movement, and so they're trying to unite around those things. Those those things should not be what we unite around. We unite around Jesus Christ. Our personal differences are not what unite us. Also, our differences should not divide us. What unites us is Jesus Christ. And so if you look in verse 10, he He appeals to us to be united first in our relationships and then also in our purpose. Notice he uses the word united. That is used in the Greek language. It's used also over in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, to speak of a net that has been torn, but someone unites or they repair or they restore that broken net. So as a church, we are to have restored relationships, right? We are are sinners Saved by grace. God's grace, Lord willing, is flowing through us continually when we're giving grace, we're speaking with grace. But there's sometimes where, where we step outside of that, don't we? And we decide that we're going to live in our flesh and sin against people. And when that happens, because we have a covenant community of love, we say we're going to be united. We're going to restore those relationships. And so we must unite, restore confess our sin. If we sin against someone else, confess that sin. If someone sins against you, forgive them. Seek reconciliation with one another. And look at the last word there of that verse. The same judgment. 
That speaks of a common purpose, a common goal. And this is really true of any organization. I mean, can you imagine, let's take like a, a Chick-fil-A or an In-N-Out or something like that. And if they're going to be successful, if they're going to be a company that's going to prosper, the CEO and the CFO and the owners and the managers and employees, they all must be united in their purpose and in their goals. And, and, and how much more for a church? If we as a church are not united in our common purpose, then we will be dysfunctional. We will be ineffective, and ultimately, we won't honor Christ. That's why, as elders, it's so important for us, we should be and we need to be sensitive to lead our church with a unity of purpose. I want our church, and us as elders, we want our church to know why we do what we do. One of the reasons Jorge sometimes explains things up here, because he wants you to know why we do what we do. In other words, here's our purpose. We're unified in this same purpose. And I really think a lot of times what happens in churches is people don't know the why. Or sometimes they don't have a why. (laughs) It's just, well, that's the way we do it, you know? And that's not a good reason. We should be united in our why, in our, our purpose. We should be clear about why we do what we do. And that's why we also need to be careful to make sure that there's not competing ministries and groups are in conflict, but we're all going down the same tracks in the same direction. So we must be unified in our purpose and in our relationships. And so second point here this morning is people instinctively seek self-centered unity. So God desires unity within his church. However, people instinctively seek self-centered unity. Look at verse 11. For it has been reported to me, that's Paul, by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I am of Paul, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. And did you know that each one of us desires unity? We pursue unity. I mean, I gave the example earlier how governments and marriages how they seek unity, or people call us to be unified within those institutions. We all want unity, but here's the problem. Our unity is usually based upon ourselves. We seek to unify to our own egos, our own desires to be right, our own desire for self-importance. And that's self-centered unity. Here's a definition. If you want to write this down, you can. Self-centered unity seeks to unite others to my ego through strife and selfish promotion and self-promotion. Self-centered unity seeks to unite others to my ego through strife and self-promotion. Notice the three key parts of that definition there. You unite others to you, so you are the basis for unity, your opinions, that you need to be right. You seek to achieve that through strife and through self-promotion. And this this takes place in homes, in businesses, in governments, and unfortunately in many churches. Let me just give you an example. Think about a mom who bakes some cookies for her kids. So let's say there's two kids in the home and she has two cookies, or maybe she has three cookies left. She has three cookies left. So she gives a cookie per child. There's one cookie left there. And so the one child 
or both children eat the cookies, and one child comes up to her at the end and says, Mom, my sister, she got two cookies yesterday, and even today, she picked the biggest one. I'm also the one who usually cleans up after dinner. Can I have that last cookie? So she wants her mom to unify around her opinion, right? And ultimately, she wants that cookie. And so she seeks to unite her mom to herself and her desire by cutting her sister down, by promoting herself, and ultimately, hopefully, getting a cookie from it. Or it might work like this in the adult world. Someone wants to have their thing, their activity, their ministry, their favorite author, whatever it is, their idea implemented. And so so they do so by uniting people around them, and they do that with strife and self-promotion. So maybe it's like this. Maybe they go to a group of people, and they talk negatively about a certain person or about a certain group of people and how how those people aren't doing it right and how they don't do it right or start talking about them. And they cut those people down. That's called strife. Then they proclaim how much better they are than those people. They list other people who agree with them, or maybe authors who would agree with them. And they try to prove how much better they are so they can get their way. And the point is, is that they seek to rally people around themselves, and they cause strife, they divide. And we say it like this, they divide and they conquer, Right? And if you're a boss, if you're a parent, if you've been an elder, you've experienced that many times where people have done that in a different variety of ways. And this text warns against that type of self-centered unity. So first notice this in verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling, there's strife among you, my brothers. Quarreling speaks of disagreements and verbal contention. Look at verse 10, he says, he uses the word divisions. And divisions describes how people were using words to cause relationships to be broken. So if you had people who were uniting others in the church to themselves, their own positions, their own opinions, by talking negatively about other people and causing division within the church and within relationships. And it was so bad that verse 11, Paul hears this all the way over in Ephesus. I mean, he says, it's reported to me by Chloe's people. Again, Paul is like 200 miles or so away from Corinth, and yet he hears this news. And we don't know who Chloe's people are. Maybe they were of Chloe's household or maybe a, a business that Chloe had. We don't know. But the point is that Paul heard the news from many, many miles away. Now, let me just pause and say this, that this is not a proof text for why we can talk negatively about other people in the church. Some people try to do that. They say, well, I'm going to say this about this person. You know, Chloe talked about someone like that. And so, you know, if that happened in scriptures, I think we're allowed to do that as well. But let me just have you consider two things. First of all, Paul publicly announced who he heard this from. So, it, so if you use this as a proof text and say, I can talk negatively about other people, then probably the next thing we should do is announce your name the next Sunday that you do that, Right? Nobody really wants that. And, and second, Paul is not encouraging negative conversations. What he's saying is he's condemning them. But he's, he's saying, I've heard this over 200 miles away. Like this is public knowledge. It's so public that it's around the world that you guys have so much strife in your church. That's the point Paul is making. 
This type of disunity is one of the greatest threats to a church. And unfortunately, it's very common within churches. And if you are in a group of people, if you're in a group of people, and they have their strong opinion about something which is not a problem, but then they begin to cut people down to support themselves, friends, watch out. Satan could be in the midst of that group. This plays out in many cars on the way, on the way home from maybe church or other events. It could happen around the dinner table. It can happen when we're hanging out with friends. It might include complaining about people, being highly critical of other people. And I think the question we ask when we hear this kind of stuff is why? Why would that happen within a church? Like you might be in here today and you might not be a Christian or maybe you don't go to church very much and you're like, yeah, that, why would that happen in a church? Well, I can tell you the reason. And it's actually the same reason it happens in governments and marriages and other relationships. James 4, the Bible says that it comes from our sinful desires that war within us. The idea here is the source of strife in a church is our sinful, selfish desires. So self-centered unity seeks to unite others to your ego through strife and then also self-promotion. Notice verse 12. He says, what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Oh, I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. What is the most common English word in that verse? I. I follow. Thank you, Paul. I think it's I. Maybe I'm wrong. Self-centered unity uses the names of highly esteemed leaders to promote oneself. It's as if if you attach that person's name to yourself, then you're more of an important person. And you have more credit before God. Remember one time when I was in college, I was watching an Indiana basketball game. Indiana was playing Michigan. I grew up in Indiana. It's basically the second religion for everyone there. Some people, it's their first religion. And if you're in Michigan, you didn't like people from, if you're in Indiana, you didn't like people from Michigan, okay? So when Indiana played Michigan, it was all out war. I ended up marrying someone from Michigan. So how does that work? I don't know. But I love her and she converted to Indiana. Anyways, that doesn't matter. <laughs> I can remember watching this game and Indiana was losing Poor. I mean, it was terrible. It was a terrible game, and they were doing a terrible job. And So I had this friend that I was with, and he had a Michigan sweatshirt on. He's sitting there eating his chips, you know, and he's cheering. He's rubbing it in. And, and the whole, you know, you just kind of, you know it's going downhill. They're not coming back. And, but you can't, you got to be loyal. you got to watch the whole game. And at the very end of the game, it was done, and he just ragged on me. He threw out statistics at me, you know. Indiana's terrible. They never, they, look, look how good Michigan is. And I went back to my dorm, and I was mad. You ever had that happen? I was, I was like, this, this guy, man, I'm so mad. I can't believe, like, and I can't believe they lost. And he's, and he's like doing this to me. And he's rubbing it in. And then suddenly, I can remember at one point, I don't know if it was that day or not, but I, it occurred to me that my friend didn't play in that game. I mean, and act, actually, he's a little overweight. And all he did was eat chips the whole time. Literally, he did nothing to have that game be won. So for him to credit himself because his team won, it's only his team because he said so. And who knows, maybe, maybe the next week when they lose, it won't be his team anymore, you know? But he elevated himself because of his association to Michigan, and he debased me because my association with Indiana, and somehow I had less value and he had more value based upon the association. How ridiculous is that? Like, he did nothing 
to have his team win. I think about that in relation to how we view many prominent leaders, many different groups, even maybe titles uh, that we put on the front of theological systems. The idea is if you follow those systems, if you are associated with that group, then somehow God likes you more. You have more favor or you're more important and those people are less important. And that is foolishness. And that's what this church was doing. Some says, I am of Paul. I mean, he was the founder of that church. I'm of Paul. I'm with the original guy, you know. I'm with Apollos. He came later on and preached at some point there and was the pastor of the church. He was very eloquent. He was very persuasive. It's like, oh, he really worked in my life. I'm of, I'm of Apollos. I'm attached to him. Or I'm a follower of Cephas, or of, that's the apostle Peter. I mean, think about that this way. That guy was the original guy, right? I mean, on this rock, I will build my church, Jesus said. So he was with Jesus for three years. So I can imagine some people, maybe he preached at some point in the church of Corinth, and some people are like, well, I'm, with, I'm with him. I'm with Peter, Cephas. And others were really spiritual. And they said, I don't even follow a human leader. I just follow Jesus. And, and the idea behind that was I reject all human authority. I reject the apostles and the pastors. And I am my own authority under Jesus, of course, was just as insidious as the other divisions. So think through these different groups. Were there any doctrinal problems with any of these preachers? No. Was he addressing any moral concerns of these preachers? No. So what was the problem? Why were people in the church dividing up over these sectarian groups? I like how one preacher said it. He said this. The Corinthians boasting about their party leaders were really boasting about themselves. It wasn't just that they thought their leader was great, but they thought they were great for following him. And it's not a problem for us to honor our leaders. Pastor Rogers, the founding pastor of the church, I think it's appropriate and it's right. The Bible, the Bible, actually, the Bible actually commands us to honor our leaders like that. We should do that. We should honor those who are faithful to the word of God. But what's the problem? The problem becomes when you try to unify people by exalting yourself and inflating your self-importance with your association to that person. The problem of disunity is really a problem of self-centered unity. And with a self-centered unity, you're uniting others to your ego by associating yourself with a position or with a person, and even sometimes with religious activity. Churches, many churches, are filled with this attitude of superiority that acquires unity through this the strife and this self-promotion. And the idea is like this. It's like, what college did you go to? Oh, let me evaluate your worth. Oh, I'm up here. Oh, you're down here. What, what do you think of this preacher? Have you, have you read this book yet? Which is not a problem to recommend a preacher a book, but it's like you go, oh, oh, you're not associated with that preacher. Oh, you don't know that person. Hmm, okay. I, I follow Piper. That was back in my day when I was in seminary. That was a big one. I follow Piper. Or I follow MacArthur. I follow Vody Bauckham. And the idea is that we attach that person to ourselves and inflate our egos 
in our flesh, we like to use associations or people or positions or things and even religious activities to inflate our own ego and add value to our worth. Our worth, though, is not found in those things. It's found in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, to think that way, to act that way, is prideful and sinful. And the irony here is that Paul was talking about godly men, and later on here we're going to see a biblical activity of baptism. However, those preachers, that, that ordinance of baptism was not the problem. The problem was these believers using these things to inflate their own pride. In fact, look down in verse 13. He gives, he asks three rhetorical questions, and for all of them, the answer is no. Verse 13, is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. And the point of those questions is to demonstrate that Christ is the unifier. Not you, not your group, not your famous preacher, not your author. It's Jesus Christ. Look to Christ. Look to his cross. Look at verse 14. He says, speaking of baptism, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Some people were saying being, being baptized by a certain person gained them some type of spiritual credit. But Paul shot that down. Baptism does not earn any grace for you. Baptism does not save you. Bath, baptism does nothing to secure your salvation. Baptism is a way for a person to publicly testify of his faith or her faith in Jesus Christ. It's a way to testify. There's no type of mystical dust that falls upon you. There's not, nothing that happens that secures your salvation because you're dipped in some kind of water. It's an act of obedience to Christ. And it symbolizes what Jesus has done to rescue us. You are you stand in the water and you, you testify that Jesus died for you. You're buried in the water, testifying that Jesus died and was buried, and then he rose again. The word baptize literally means to immerse. The word baptize is a transliteration of the Greek word baptizo. It means putting someone under. So go with me to chapter or Acts chapter 18 and look at when these believers were baptized. Acts chapter 18 records when Paul went to Corinth and preached the gospel, and then some he baptized, and then others were baptized probably by Timothy and some other leaders there. As you're turning there, I want you to just consider baptism. It's a symbol that Christ commanded the church to use to picture his work for us. Matthew 28, 19 says this. Jesus said, Here's what the church is to do. Go, make disciples of all nations. So we're to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So he's saying, first, go make disciples. How do you do that? You preach the gospel and Christ works in the hearts of people and brings their souls to life. Second, you're to baptize or to immerse them in the, Holy, in the name of the Holy Trinity. 
Then third, you are to teach them the scripture. So look in Acts 18. Look at verse 4. This is the historical record of how this church was started. Verse 4. And he, that's Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied. In other words, this is what he was doing all the time with the word. It's the word of God. And so what was he doing? He was testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. He was taking the word of God and he was preaching the gospel and that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the king. He's the king who came to conquer What did Jesus come to conquer? He came to conquer sin and death and hell. I want you to think about who Paul was preaching to. Paul was preaching to Jews. Those were people who believed that being good enough or following the law could earn them some type of grace from God. They could earn their forgiveness. They could earn possible access into heaven. So these are people who believed that good works could save them. Greeks were listening to them. Greeks were people who, who many of them believed that they could worship a God of stone. They could, they lived, many of them lived for the sake of gaining more knowledge or having hedonistic pleasure. And the interesting thing about Corinth is that it's actually a pretty interesting reflection, a good reflection of America. Here you have religious people who think that they follow these rules. God will give them favor and forgive their sins and hopefully give them into heaven. And then you have other people who are living for themselves, fulfilling their sensual desires, and they're just living life for me. And so he comes to these people and he preaches the gospel. And the gospel says this, turn from trusting yourself, from living for yourself, and look to Jesus and trust in him alone to save you. And the word of God teaches us that God is holy, God is good, and he has created us to enjoy him, to honor him, and to follow him, but we have not honored him. We have not put him first. We have not enjoyed him. We have have dishonored him. We have broken his laws. We have lied. We have taken things that are not ours. We have been sinfully angry. We have lusted. We have coveted. So because we have sinned against God, then God, therefore, as a holy, righteous judge, must punish us for our sin. And the punishment for our sin is eternal separation from God and his goodness. And do you know what that's called? What is it called to be eternally separated from God and his goodness? That's called hell. But the Bible also teaches that God is love. Because God is love, he provided a way to have sin forgiven. The Bible teaches that God the Father sent his holy son to live a perfect holy life, to suffer and to die, to be punished in our place on the cross. This is the reason the cross is so important. The cross is so important because it was on the cross that Jesus invited your hell upon himself so he could give you an invitation to heaven. On that cross, the father removed his grace from his son and instead gave him wrath. And he did that because he loves you. And he wants to remove wrath from you. 
because of your sin and give you instead grace. Grace that saves, grace that forgives, grace that gives you eternal life. And Jesus died. He died as the conquering king. When he took his last breath on that cross, he defeated sin, he defeated hell, he defeated Satan. And he proved that by rising from the dead. He defeated the greatest enemies of all time. And Jesus promises that he will save and forgive any who turn from their way, from their way of trusting in themselves, from their own religion, and trust him as the king and savior. So look down in Acts chapter 5, or Acts chapter 8, verse, sorry, Acts chapter 18, verse 5. And notice there was one there. Acts chapter 18, verse 8, sorry. There was one there that believed in Jesus and he was baptized. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, what did he do? He believed in the Lord together with his entire house. So here you had the ruler of the synagogue. Here was a person who formally taught, if you follow God's laws, you can receive favor. You can receive forgiveness. And now he says, that's wrong. Actually, I believe that Jesus is the only one who can save. He is the only Lord. And so he believed in the Lord. His whole house did, so probably means his wife, his children, maybe his servants or maids or whoever else was a part of his household. And then what happened after that happened? Verse 8, he believed in the Lord together with his whole house, and many of the Corinthians hearing, they believed. So many Greeks, Jews, all these people turned from their sin, turned to Christ, and then they were baptized. Now, let me pause here and, and, and talk to you if you are without Christ. You may be in here today, and I want to tell you that there's good news for you. And there's good news in Jesus Christ. See, the question for you today is, have you confessed your inability to save yourself And are you trusting that Jesus alone is the conquering king? He alone can remove your sin, forgive your sin, and give you forgiveness through his work on the cross. John 3.36 says this, The one who believes in the Son, the one who turns from faith in themselves, from living for themselves, and they say, I'm going to believe in Jesus as my Lord. I'm following him. He's my king. God says you have eternal life. In other words, at that moment, he gifts you the gift of eternal life. How long does eternal life go on for? Forever. And so if you're in here today and you're without Christ and you feel the conviction of your sin, you were like, I I need to trust in Jesus. Right now in your seat, you can say, I know I've sinned against you. I know I deserve eternal separation from you. But Lord, I believe Jesus took that punishment on the cross and I want to follow him. And you know what he does? He gives you the gift of eternal life. That's called grace. The grace that God removed from Jesus on the cross, the the wrath that God put upon Jesus, when we trust in him, he gives us the grace of Jesus Christ and he removes the wrath. In fact, the Bible says, though the one who rejects the son will not see life. If you say, I'm gonna live my life for myself, I don't really care, I can trust in myself, you will not see life, you won't see eternal life. Instead, what will happen is after you die, 
you will actually have the wrath of God remain on you. And you will be separated from him forever. That is the word of God. That's not my opinion. That's not the church opinion. That's the Bible's opinion. That's Jesus Christ himself. And so, friend, if you're in here without Christ, please call upon him to save you. But notice what happened right after they believed in Jesus. They were baptized. Verse 8 says that. They believed, and then they were baptized. So this tells us a couple things. First of all, baptism is only for those who believe. Secondly, they were baptized, they were immersed after they believed. So why did these believers get baptized? They did so as a testimony that they had turned from a life of trusting themselves, living for themselves, and now they were trusting and living for the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were testifying that, that God the Father had applied the work of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to their life. So in a moment, we're going to have a baptism. And when this person's baptized, this person's going to be testifying by their words, but also by their actions, that they are trusting that Jesus alone died for them, that Jesus died for them, and that Jesus uh, was buried for them, and Jesus rose again, and Jesus alone is the one who saves them and who has saved them. So go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Baptism is a very important step of obedience for a Christian. So if you look at verse 14 and 15, though, why did Paul write what he wrote? He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Why is that? He says in verse 15, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Paul was thankful he wasn't the main one who baptized so people would not use it to boast. And it's so easy. And actually, I would say it's even natural for us to want to find our worth in religious activities, even good, godly, commanded religious activities, to find our worth in that and to try to gain some kind of spiritual credit from God through a religious deed or an association. I can remember when I was growing up, I grew up in a, a preacher's home, and I would often think to myself that God favors me, God has saved me because I'm in a godly family. My dad's a pastor. Of course, I'm on my way to heaven. Or I'm a pretty good person. I sat in the front row down here. I took notes. Like, I'm actually a good person. Think about all the other people in the church. I even got baptized once thinking that's going to help secure my faith in the Lord, that I'm, I'm certain I'm going to heaven, I'm going to get baptized. That's going to give me some kind of favor from God. And I thought I could earn God's grace with these religious deeds and this family association. But eventually, the Lord revealed my sin to me. And I realized, you're not better than anyone else in this church. You're just as sinful as everybody else little younger, little different types of sins. And you are actually unable to earn anything from God. And so at the age of 15, I called upon the Lord to save me. And he saved me. And after that, I went to my pastor. There was a couple of pastors there. I went to the pastor who baptized us. And I went to him and I said, I would like to be baptized. Why? Because I believed in Jesus and I truly believed. And now I want to testify to the congregation that that is true. But the point is, being baptized by a certain person 
going over to Israel and going into the Jordan. This is where Jesus, oh, this is going to do something for me. Someone dunk me under here. You know, it's going to give me some type of special favor with God. No, it won't. You're just getting wet again. It's all you're doing over there. It's kind of dirty water. It's kind of gross. You ever seen that? Sometimes people wear the white gowns and they don't wear something under it. That's, it's, it's not a good sign. Like, it's not a good thing. And the point is, we like to attach associations and religious deeds to try to earn God's favor. But God's grace comes through Christ's work on the cross, not through your work. And I receive God's grace when I humble myself under the cross. And so that leads us to our last point. We're going to finish up here. The third point is this. Christ-centered unity is attained when we humble ourselves under the preaching of the cross. Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize. Now, why did he say that? Baptism is a symbol. Baptism doesn't save. It's a good step of obedience. You should do it. If you're not baptized and you're a believer, you should do that as soon as possible. But it doesn't save. He came to preach so people could be saved. So he says, I did not come to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul taught that Christ-centered unity is found at the foot of the cross. Notice he preached with humility. He says, not with words of eloquent wisdom. In other words, no one turned to Christ because Paul was the most eloquent preacher in the world. It wasn't that he told some really funny stories. He really hooked people in and then gave them the gospel. It wasn't that he knew how to really illustrate it or he had a great smile. Some preachers that have some pretty good smiles out there. No, his preaching was humble. He preached the word and he preached the work of Christ to save. And it's in the humble preaching of the cross of Christ that God powerfully humbles us before him. And here's the point. Here was a church that was filled with negativity, division, strife, self-seeking, self-promotion. But Paul said, my preaching didn't have that. Like I was humble my preaching. I just took the word and took the cross and exalted Jesus Christ. And here is the secret to unity in a church. Unity is attained when we all humble ourselves before Christ. We can't have unity unless we have the grace of God. We can't have God's grace unless we humble ourselves before God. And humility is found at the foot of the cross. As we humble ourselves before Christ and his work for us, and we trust in him, his grace flows to us, and the Holy Spirit unites us. And again, because God desires unity for his church, we as a church must humble ourselves under the preaching of his cross. And so, friend, you might be in here this morning, and you are not believing in Jesus Christ. And so my invitation to you today is to come to Jesus. For God so loved you that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, 
but should have eternal life. Remember, Christ invited your hell upon himself so that he could invite you to his heaven. And have you received and accepted his invitation? If not, right here in your seat, you can call out to him and he will save you. And then church for us, wouldn't you agree that we all have times where we try to create unity by rallying people around our ego? That we like to sometimes divide and talk negatively about people and then we try to conquer through self-promotion? I think it's good for us to confess that to the Lord. Maybe there is even a specific person or something that came to your mind. And if that happened, I think you should probably consider that as the Lord, the Holy Spirit, putting that in your mind. If you need to reconcile with that person, I think you should ask God, God, first of all, will you forgive me for that? Thank you. And then will you give me strength to go talk to that person? All of us, though, need to humble ourselves under the preaching of the cross and confess we're not better than anyone else. No one in this room, Pastor Roger, myself, elders, deacons, nobody in this room is better than anyone else. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. We're all sinners saved by grace. And therefore, we must live in the unity that Christ has given to us. Behold how good, how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. As we bow in prayer, there's a number of people in here this morning that are new, and I don't know who is with us here this morning, but I want to invite you to come to Christ if you are not a believer in Jesus. His invitation to you is open, and he calls for you to come to him. Father, I pray, I pray, Lord, for those listening to my voice right now. Maybe the Holy Spirit is convicting them of their need for you. Lord, I pray they will not resist, not reject the Son of God. And therefore, Lord, someday die in their sins and, and the wrath of God will remain on them. I pray today they will believe in Jesus Christ. Lord, for our church, you, Father, are one with Jesus. Spirit, you are one with Jesus. Father, uh, Jesus, you are one with the Father. I mean, there's this oneness and threeness, and there's a unity within you, God. And we want as a church to have a unity as well. We want to all have one voice, one heart, one, one love for each other. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll convict us when we're not that way, when we divide when we conquer, when we unite to our ego, we pray, Lord, convict us and may we find forgiveness and healing in Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.